interesting things about Miriam Lee is that she was hungry to learn. She was constantly learning. And if she heard of somebody somewhere in the world who had developed a special technique for treating a particular problem, she would go there. She would go and meet that person and she'd hang out with that person and learn what that person could do. And then she'd come back and she'd integrate it into her practice. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. What's it like where you are right now? Not what you think it is or wishing it wasn't. What's it like right now where you are? I'm guessing if you're anything like me, wherever you are, it's a place you're passing through. You're probably on your way to somewhere or something else. This moment, it's likely a transactional, gotta do this so I can get on with doing that. This moment for me, cooling my heels, waiting for an oil change and safety inspection. I'm here for long enough that scrolling through the phone or distracting myself through the wait with my usual mental antics, it's just a bit too long of a stretch of time to be wasting. Of course, I could be productive. I could write a little something for the podcast. But it's middle November, warm for the season in a way that makes me like climate change because the weather in Missouri has been getting more and more moderate over the past years that I can recollect. The sunlight this morning has that waning pale yellow into silver cast. And as I sit here with a wall full of tires for sale and something mindless on the TV, I realize that I'm in the company of men, working men, the guys I rarely notice because after all, the safety inspection and the changed oil, it's transactional, not relational. But I'm stuck here for just long enough that I bother to notice that this is a place where men work and they're invisible. They're just the guys in ball hats with grease under their fingernails who help to clean up the air a little bit with their emissions work and make sure that my car runs in such a way that I don't really need to pay attention to it. Their labor, their skill, it largely goes unnoticed because the only time I would notice it is if they didn't do their job well. But generally, they do. Their invisibility means they are successfully doing their work. Sure, I pay them, but I rarely thank them, and even less, appreciate them when my car unfailingly starts up in the cold of winter drizzle. Men get the blame for many of our society's illnesses. We are the toxic ones. We are the source of avoidable problems. You might have a refrain in your head, a list and a litany of our transgressions, which is why I'm grateful for a chance to pause today. Notice the particular hue of the middle November sunlight, the sound of classic rock radio and air hammers in the work bays. Allow myself into this place instead of imagining that I should be elsewhere. The men here, the work is solitary and skilled. I could be agitated 
about having to wait in a repair shop, but instead, I'll imbibe the feeling of men at work. Because turning the transactional into relational, it seems to make my world a little better and give me a greater appreciation for the unseen labor and efforts of those I could otherwise so easily dismiss or ignore. Self-reliance is a theme as old as America itself. It's part of the DNA of our culture, and it was alive and well in the 70s when Ephraim Korngold was living in a remote community of those who were called to live close to the land. That was the beginning of his interest in effective, local, and portable medicine. Like many in those early days, hearing about acupuncture sparked an interest in him that took him first to England, and then China, and then back to urban life as he got involved with the opening of a couple of schools in what became a lifelong interest in Chinese medicine. As Ephraim said in this conversation, the definition of a good paradigm is that you can apply it effectively to new problems. As you might already know, East Asian medicine, it's a good paradigm. We'll be finding out more about that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. 
You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. You're from Corngold. Welcome Thank to you. Geological. Really good to be here and to meet you, Michael. I think we'll have an interesting conversation. At least I hope so. Well, I hope so too. We're going to be talking about Chinese medicine, so how could that be boring? Exactly. Yeah. How long have you been at this now? A little over 50 years. A little over 50 years. Man, that makes you an antique, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, I prefer the expression old timer. Old timer. Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man, I remember when I was younger, old timer meant, you know, crotchety old guy, but, you know, now I am one. Yeah, about 10 years ago, so I ran into an old friend that I hadn't seen in maybe 20 years, and I didn't recognize him, and he looked at me and he said, how you doing, old timer? Uh, and I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, well, we're still here, aren't we? Today we're going to take a little walk through history because you have been at this for over 50 years. You began in our profession before there was really a profession. It was emerging. It was coming out of wherever it came out of. I I suspect there were a lot of Asian influences and maybe there were some European influences. But there was a moment where it seemed to really come into the mainstream. I'd like to begin with where you were and what was going on in the world. Like, what were the headlines? What were people worried about? What were you worried about when you first heard about acupuncture? What what did that landscape look like? Well, when I first heard about acupuncture, I heard about it from my dad. My dad, who was a very well-known clinical psychologist in some circles, had been living in England and just fortuitously, uh, somebody said that he should see an acupuncturist. Um, I think he was feeling depressed. And so he 
saw an ad on a billboard somewhere. An ad on a billboard? Yeah. You know, for an acupuncturist in in the Midlands in England in a place called Kenilworth. And he went, and uh, it was like a miracle cure. It was like for the first time in several years, his depression completely lifted. And um, at the time, we were corresponding a lot. I was finishing up my college education. And so he wrote me about this experience. I said, oh, that's really exciting. That's pretty interesting. Actually, at that time, I was living with a group of people on a commune in the wilderness in Northern California. And during, for about four years between 1968 and 1972, and it was a very remote, a very remote place in Northern California. And we basically had to learn to do everything for ourselves, including medicine. So we learned a lot from local people, from Native Americans, from old miners. What did you learn from old miners? That's fascinating. Uh, for example, how to how to treat severe poison oak. You know, with uh, you make a you make a, a bathtub full of leaves from manzanita and you soak in that and it will resolve very quickly resolve the inflammation and the itching of poison oak so that's just one example anyway um Mm -hmm. this group of people that i was living with we were all very uh, radically radical political people um left-wing from all over the country, and we became very interested, very taken with um, what we were reading about what was happening in China after the revolution, particularly in in healthcare and uh, agriculture. So this was in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, so this was way after the mm-hmm. the '59 revolution. So, but were you looking at the '49 revolution, or were you looking at the Cultural Revolution? Well, well, this was the period of the. Actually, it was just before the Cultural Revolution, mm-hmm. and we—I don't know about we, but we were—we were taken with um, how the Chinese society was adapting to this new world. Mm -hmm. And um, we read a book called uh, Report from a Chinese Village, which was by an anthropologist named Jan Murdahl. And this was like an anthropological study of people who lived and basically lived in caves that were dug out of the side of mountains. And they had an agricultural life. And they did everything for themselves. And so their their medicine was based on 
local knowledge, folk knowledge, what we would call folk knowledge about plants, primarily about plants, but also about animals. So anyway, so fast forward a little bit. So I get this information from my dad about acupuncture and it really um, inspires me. I get really interested. I started reading a lot about books that I could find on Chinese philosophy. Because mm-hmm. there's not really many books on Chinese medicine yet. No. Well, as far as I knew, there weren't any And um, at that point. And as fortune would have it, uh, and as I said, I pointed out earlier, we, we had to learn how to take care of ourselves physically, medically. One of the things that we became involved with early on was midwifery because we started, people started having babies out there in the wilderness. Got to be able to handle that. So uh, a small group of us traveled north to Seattle to learn um, wilderness medicine and midwifery from this group of physicians and nurses who were training people who were living, you know, out of the city. They were training them in in sort of uh, wilderness medicine and and midwifery. While I was there in Seattle, I happened to hear about a man who was teaching acupuncture at the University of Washington, a Chinese man. Uh, I think his name was Liang, and he was Canadian. And so I, I went to the school and I sought out this man. I went to his. Cl- I went to a class and listened to him teach. And of course, it meant nothing to me really. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking. Was really talking about. But at the end of the class, he gave me um, some material. I guess some handouts about acupuncture, which I uh, took home with me and studied them faithfully. Of course, again, uh, it was like, you know, reading Greek, you know, meant very little except that it was very interesting. And then around the same time, we came across this book called the um, Barefoot Doctor's Manual. Mm-hmm. And that was right up your alley. It was. Given where you were living. Exactly, because it was all about, you know, non-conventional, non-professional medical and health care that you could do wherever you were. And this was, this was like a movement that was happening in China along with other social movements that were going on that, again, was kind of exciting that people were coming to the city and maybe spending three to six months to a year learning to do um, traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine combined. And then these people would go back to their villages and they would become the local doctor. So this was very, um, it's what we were doing and it's what we were looking for. So 
the next chapter is that when my father came back from England, he, uh, of course, told me a lot more about his experiences, and his acupuncturist in England had been J.R. Worsley. Mm-hmm. There's a connection for you. Yeah. And in, I think it was June of 1972, Worsley had come to the U.S., first to the East Coast, and then to California. He was apparently recruiting students. He was wanting to start his own school, and that's a whole other story, but he had originally started a school in London with, uh, with Van Buren, another British acupuncturist, and then they had a falling out. And so Worsley decided to start his own school, and he was coming to the, to the U.S., and he somehow became involved with people who were part of a unusual spiritual group called Arika, which the the guru of that was a Chilean named Oscar Ichazu. And I don't know, I don't remember how Worsley became involved with these people, but they were mainly uh, on the East Coast. And then I think somebody said, well, you ought to go to Esalen and teach a seminar. So he did, and I and my partner, Harriet Beinfield, and my dad and his partner. <laughs> and your dad. Your dad went with you. Uh, we all went to Esalen <laughs> and did a two-week seminar with Jack Worsley on acupuncture. And again, the purpose of that was that he was he was recruiting students to start a school in England. So so we, you know, we said, okay, we'll sign up. And then after, in the fall of 72, we all went to England, to Kettleworth, where he was the mayor. And he was the mayor of Kettleworth. And, you know, he, of course, has an interesting history. Um, Yeah, he was the mayor, so... He knew everybody, and he got us a good deal in the hotel. It, he didn't really, you know, we had all our classes in a, in a hotel. It was called the De Montfort Hotel, the only hotel in Kettleworth. How long was this course of study? This course of study was originally, you know, our first stay in England was probably maybe six weeks. And there... Get you a little bit up and running. And then we had to go home, and we had homework mm-hmm. to do. And then we came back uh, at the beginning of 1973 for part two, which was another, I think, month. And then, and then we came home, and. Um, Many of the people in that group, there were about probably 25 people in that original class, half of whom were, were doctors, were physicians. Mm-hmm. Now, did your dad go on this as oh, well? Oh, yeah. Your dad went too. Your dad went and learned acupuncture from Jack Worsley. Yeah. yeah. Well, all four of us went. 
Wait, wait, you, Harriet, your dad, who else? And his partner at the time. Um, yeah, so we all studied with Worsley, and we came home, and in February of 1973, um, Harriet went to Vermont because she had friends there that she wanted to stay with, and she became the first acupuncturist in the history of the state of Vermont. I came back to San Francisco, and of course, um, I knew, but I became much more aware of the fact that there were many acupuncturists in the Chinese community in San Francisco. I started looking around for, the, you know, meeting those people, going to Chinatown, and becoming familiar with Chinese pharmacies, and um, actually established a relationship for, with a, a Chinese doctor, Chinese traditional doctor, who was himself pretty much self-taught. It was never clear where he got his education, but he was a very, very um, successful and effective doctor who um, treated a lot of, you know, important people in San Francisco. Every time we would go there, he would open his book to show us all the people that had come to him for help. And they were senators and, you know, people in politics and business and but but he had a very low profile, so nobody knew, you know, he, he didn't want people to know about him. Well, and the people that did know about him, um, it's the kind of people you want to know about you. Right. So um, he was a really good herbal, herbal doctor, too. And, and he was an acupuncturist. Now, how are you putting all this together? I, my suspicion is... Learning from Worsley in, in the early days, you're getting one view of, of what acupuncture is. You're studying with this Chinese guy. And I, I suspect that's a whole different kettle of fish at that right. point. So when we, when we came back to the U.S., there was a, an opportunity to continue studying with Jack Worsley. However, fortuitously, we met a woman who had also been a student of his, who was a very close friend of a Chinese woman acupuncturist in Palo Alto named Miriam Lee. I don't know if you've ever heard of Miriam Lee. Yeah, well, I don't, has anybody not heard of Miriam Lee? I don't know. I don't know. But she was a, a very, very influential person among a, a, a rather small group of people at the time in 1973 and 1974. So we started going to classes with her. And her view of Chinese medicine was radically different from Jack Worsley. And by comparison, which a much more complex and deeper understanding of the classics and the tradition of, of practice, particularly of acupuncture. She didn't do herbal medicine. She only did acupuncture, and she was probably one of the most 
amazingly brilliant acupuncturists I've ever met. And one of the interesting things about Miriam Lee is that she was hungry to learn. She was constantly learning. Um, and if she heard of somebody somewhere in the world who had developed a special technique for treating a particular problem, that she would go there. She would go and meet that person, and she'd hang out with that person and learn what that person could do, and then she'd come back, and she'd integrate it into her practice. So she was not traditional in the sense of adhering only to traditional views or practices. She was constantly learning, wanting to learn new things. And as you probably know, he was the first acupuncturist outside of the Chinese community, as far as I know, who um, used and taught what's now called Dr. Tang's acupuncture. And she has learned that, she learned it from, I think, a relative of hers who had learned it from him. And then she taught other people, and including uh, a lot of Chinese acupuncturists in the Bay Area. So there are lots of, you know, she was kind of the, the source, the original source for that in, uh, I think, basically in the United States. And she was open, it sounds like, to sharing this with people who were not Chinese. It's like, if you're interested, I'll teach you. Exactly. So that was very special about Miriam, is that she was not, um, she didn't jealously guard her knowledge. Or, you know, if you were seriously interested in learning, you, you could come and learn with her. I mean, she was amazing. She, uh, she had a clinic. She worked six days a week, you know, Monday through Saturday from like seven in the morning, and people would line up outside her clinic. And she would just keep seeing patients until, you know, like maybe seven in the evening. And she had um, not a big office, but she had 10 stalls five on each side of, a, of an aisle. And, you know, one by one by one, people would walk in and come in, and she kept, you know, treating people all day long. She would treat um, sometimes 80 people in a day. And I think this, I learned, this is very traditional. Uh, you know, some clinics in... Uh, not necessarily in the cities, but outside of the cities in China where there is a good doctor, people basically line up. People didn't make appointments. No, no. The, uh, the time I spent in Asia, I, you could not get a doctor's appointment. You'd walk in. you just come. You would take a number. Right. And then you hang out and gossip with the person next to you until it was time to see the doctor. Right. So if you were lucky, you got there early enough you wouldn't have to come back the next day. But anyway, so that's what she, that's how she worked, and that's kind of what we were exposed to. And we learned a great deal from her, at least. And, and it was so different. 
from what we had been taught by Jack Worsley that there was no, uh, it didn't make sense to, to, to pursue his style of Chinese medicine of acupuncture. It was, uh, in my view, was, you know, oversimplistic. And uh, not that it wasn't effective, because he did de develop, I think, an effective system, method, that was very teachable to lots of people. And um, I remember that Ted Kapchuk said at one time that when he was first doing acupuncture in New York, that occasionally he would send, he would refer some patients to a Worsley five element practitioner because he felt like they were better uh, to helping people with psychological problems. Mm -hmm. And that was a big emphasis of the Worsley method was, you know, paying attention to emotional and psychological issues and, and symptoms. So that, you know, then in 1972, or was it 71, when Nixon went to China, right, and um, the journalist who was there covering Nixon's visit got appendicitis, and he had an appendectomy, and he, what he wrote about wasn't the appendectomy, it was the recovery. So he had acupuncture for post-operative pain, and he was, he was a writer for the New York Times, and he wrote headlines saying, I've seen the past and it worked. <laughs> what a great headline. I've seen the past and it works. Oh, man, that's great. Right? And that opened the door. And, but it was still, you know, it was still uh, during the Cultural Revolution. That didn't end until 1974. And so it wasn't until 1974, really, that people, that Westerners started going to China to learn acupuncture or to, to find, to discover, to find out, you know, what is this all about? First people that went were physicians because they were also, the Chinese were also using acupuncture as analgesia for, for some surgery. And that was very interesting for Western physicians. It was. I, I've got a question about that because I've heard that as well. And it's it, it's almost like an, I don't know if it's an urban myth at this point. I've heard about it. I've never actually seen it. I saw it. You saw it? Yes. I'd like to hear about that. So in 1980, first time I went to China, I went with 10, 10 of us, went to uh, Kunming. Mm, nice place. Uh-huh. And we Kunming, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. Kunming, Kunming is like way down in Yunnan province, the capital of Yunnan. It is the capital of Yunnan. Most people would go to like Beijing or Shanghai or something. How did you end up in Kunming, for goodness sakes? Right. Well, 
Well, I'll tell you the backstory there. So, um, I don't know if you know this, but I was instrumental in founding one of the first two acupuncture schools in San Francisco. It was called the San Francisco College of Acupuncture. But then there was the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and both schools began about the same time. Mm -hmm. And what year is this? And the American College was a little sooner, was maybe 1978, 79. But the other one came very soon after. And in any case, um, we were friends with uh, Howard Fields, who was one of the people that started the American College School. And one of the teachers in that college was a man named Dr. C.S. Chung, and he'd been a medical doctor in China, and he had been um, sent to, you know, an a re-educational camp mm. in China during the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. where he learned acupuncture and Chinese medicine from Chinese medicine doctors who had also been set there during the Cultural Revolution. And he was an amazing person. And he eventually escaped from Yunnan to Burma, and from Burma made his way ultimately to San Francisco. So he was very, he was very good friends with some doctors in Yunnan who became very after the Cultural Revolution, who became important people. And one of those people was the, was the head of a, of a Chinese medicine hospital in Kunming. And so through his relationship, uh, 10 of us went to Kunming for a month to study, to study herbal medicine. So we had two teachers, and um, it was the middle of winter in Kunming, and it was uh, the hotel we were staying in didn't have any central heating. Nope. <laughs> the Ming, you know, Yunnan, Kunming especially is called, has uh, a name for, called Spring City. Uh, Sichuan Cheng, I think something, yeah, it's like Four Seasons Spring City. Yeah, it's actually not bad in the winter because the water there mm. a lot like San Francisco. Yep. Right? Well, the weather is very mild, but that winter, it was colder in Kunming than it was in Beijing. And that's when we were there. We were there in uh, November, December, January of 1980, uh, 81. So it was very cold. The only way we could warm up, and we would go to class wearing multi-layers of clothing. And the only way we could stay warm was by drinking many cups of hot green tea. Of course, when you drink a lot of green tea, you have to get up and pee very frequently. There was a lot of drinking tea and, you know, getting up and going to the job. And, but when we would get back to our hotel, the only way to warm up would be to take a hot bath. They did have hot water. Right. 
So that was the way we made it through that winter. Um, yeah, so where was I going with that? Using a lot of futsa there in the winter and a lot of like Shanghanlin formulas. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, man, you got a cold snap down there. That must be a great time to learn some cold damage medicine. Yep. Yeah. Yunnan. But it wasn't typically a cold place. No, no. It's usually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, so yes, yeah, so Fuzha is, you know, famous. Yunnan is famous for Fuzha. You know, the best aconite comes from there. And it's really part of their their medicine more than any other parts of China. And I think until fairly recently, um, Chinese doctors in other parts of China were very hesitant to use Fuzha because they were scared of it. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, especially the people in like southern China, I would suspect northerners may be a little more willing. Yeah. But for sure, you know, east coast, south, Jiangsu, those places, that'd be a no-go. Well, I'll tell you a story about Fuzha that I learned from this Dr. Chung. Uh, he heard a story from one of the people that he studied with about a man with pretty severe... I think probably would call osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, and um, and he'd been to several doctors, traditional doctors, and um, he wasn't getting better. So he he found somebody new, different, and the doctor prescribed Fusa cooked with with lamb with mutton that makes sense if you want to warm someone up yeah and he ate that for i don't know how long several days or maybe even weeks and he was cured well they've also got some famous the uh, horsheng pai the the fire god school 
what uh-huh. comes out of that area. The the doctors right. that use like ridiculous, you know, what we'd call ridiculous amounts of food. So, but there, it was it was part of what they did. That's interesting too, because Yunnan, you know, is on the border of Burma and Thailand and Tibet, and those are semi-tropical, tropical region. They are, but but you're not, but uh, Kunming itself is kind of up on a plateau. So it, so that's why you get that four seasons of spring, and not too not too hot in the summer, not too cold in the winter. Unless right. you're there, kind of like Denver, you know. Um, but very, very close to Kunming are these, you know, very warm places. And so it's interesting that aconite is like the, the king of, the king of medicine. And it's curious, isn't it? Yeah. 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 A little bit unexpected. Hey, I want to go back to the schools for just a second. Sure. You helped to found the uh, American College, the San Francisco College. This is all very early. Yeah. How do you start a school? Okay. Well, and and I mean, in terms of like accrediting people and getting them interested. And look, most of us, are, if we go to school, it's because we want to get some kind of a job afterwards and be able to make some money, do something in the world. Right. So your acupuncture is brand new. You're just getting started. How does that work, and what kind of people did you attract? Well, the school that I that I helped start was weird. <laughs> it was very weird. Well, of course, it was an acupuncture school in the seventies. It was started by a man who was basically a, a, a you know semi wealthy real estate developer, and he owned this building. And for some reason, and I never really understood exactly his story, he got interested in um, smoking cessation treatment. Mm. So he established a, you know, stop smoking clinic in this building. And I think he found an acupuncture at around that time, there were these reports from China that acupuncture could be used to help people withdraw from addictive substances, mm-hmm. right? Smoking being, you know, tobacco being one of them. So he managed to find an acupuncturist, Chinese guy, I think, in San Francisco, who did that. And But then he thought, well... Maybe um, maybe I'll start a, an acupuncture school. You know, this was his idea. Mm-hmm. Who knows why? I know it's it, it's weird. I mean, it seems to me that again, the emergence of our profession. It's odd that it it kind of emerged in lots of different places, right? Through many different people in kind of strange ways. Here we have this guy interested in helping people stop smoking and oh yeah acupuncture and there's you know uh-huh. here's a tributary now of where that comes from it's so curious so i don't know how he how he came upon me because i was keeping a very low profile on those days because mm-hmm. now you're treating people at this point yeah i'm treating people uh-huh. without a license 
What's that? Yeah, there's no licensing. There's no licensure. There's no, there's no, you're not in the yellow pages. Right. My teacher, Miriam Lee, is arrested twice for practicing medicine without a license. And twice, this was in San Mateo County, the DA has come in to the office where she worked, actually under the supervision of a physician, and they they take all her files. They take everything, all her records, and they tell her to stop. Wow. It's like the SWAT team comes in and... And then she, she waits for a while, and then she goes back, you know, she does it again. And then she's, you know, they stop her again. She didn't actually go to jail. Uh, and there was an acupuncturist in San Francisco, a Chinese man, who had a big clinic. And... He was very high profile, and he was also um, told by the San Francisco DA that he had to stop doing acupuncture. So this was in like 1974, 75. But at this point, there was a growing movement to enfranchise acupuncture. And it was basically being driven by by Chinese, Japanese, and Korean people who had come to the United States, who come to the Bay Area, either who already knew Chinese medicine, had already been practicing, or wanted to be, right? So there were a lot of people that came from, from China, Korea, and Japan to San Francisco who did not know traditional medicine. But they wanted to become mm -hmm. professionals, medical professionals. And so they started learning from each other, basically. And um, so there was a movement to to pass a law that would that would license acupuncture and which finally was passed in nineteen seventy six. So between nineteen seventy four and nineteen seventy six there was a huge lobbying effort uh, among all of the people in San Francisco and California who were either acupuncturists, most of them were Asian, but some, you know, not Asian people like ourselves. And um, with the help of particularly a labor organizer who started a lobbying group called Californians for Acupuncture. So he organized workers in the labor movement and ordinary people to lobby the California Assembly and California State Senate to pass a law enfranchising acupuncture. If we hadn't, I think that he had experienced it. You know, he'd been helped. He was from Southern California, I think. And um, and people, lots of people, it turns out, had been helped by acupuncture before we even, before I even knew anything about acupuncture. And when I became an acupuncturist and started practicing in San Francisco, I ran into people, some of the people who came to me as patients and say, oh, 
I've been, I was getting acupuncture years ago from so-and-so in Chinatown, you know, and particularly people, for example, who are in the martial arts, because a lot of martial arts teachers also had a sideline in acupuncture or twina or, you know, they had, they did a little bit, right? And so this is part of San Francisco culture and also Los Angeles culture. So Los Angeles and San Francisco were the two primary uh, locales for Chinese medicine, and probably Seattle too, but to a lesser degree, it, it, all on the, on the West Coast yes. of the United States, because that's, that's where the Chinese people came. You have that influence. Look, there was this amazing doctor who lived in this little mining town in Oregon, John Day, oh, yeah. Doc Hay. And evidently, Doc Hay treated lots of people. There was even some very bad flu, in, flu epidemic that went through, and, and he treated all kinds of people, helped a ton of folks. Right. The story about Ing Hay, he wasn't a doctor when he came to the United States. He came and he went to work in a lo in a pharmacy that was belonged to some other doctor, and he learned medicine. And he became very famous as a pulse doctor. Mm -hmm. He was very very good at the pulse. And the story is is that there was a, a terrible influenza epidemic, and what he did is uh, he came to the center of the town, and he had a big kettle full of tea that he had brewed. And people would come by, and he'd give them tea, right? And nobody in John Day died from influenza. But there were lots of deaths all around, uh, which the, the Western doctors couldn't, they couldn't care for people adequately. So there were a lot of people. And so Ing Hay got a reputation, and he that created a lot of jealousy among Western physicians. I'll bet it did. And the story, yeah. So the story is is that they planted opium in his pharmacy, and then they sent the police in to arrest him. But fortunately for him, he had treated the wife of a local judge for infertility, and she had had a baby. And so the judge came to his defense. And so he, so, you know, but these kinds of serendipitous and fortuitous events were happening all over. Um, yeah, well, I'm thinking about the guy who escaped from the re-education camp, yeah. goes through Burma, ends up in the United States, right. that's your connection to go to China and study. It, it's so unpredictable, you know? Yeah, and but that's also what made it exciting. Of course. Thrilling and uh, like a whole new world. And we felt like we were... Um, adventurers, explorers. We were starting something really new. Of course, we weren't. I mean... Well, well, you weren't, you weren't, but you were. <laughs> you were helping it to emerge into a different sector of, well, into the mainstream society of America. Right. 
So we felt like we were part of the avant-garde, and yeah. and we were. And um, between 1974 and 1976, we were a very important, you know, an integral part of this effort, this lobbying effort to get a law passed. I helped to start. Um, oh, so part of the problem was that there was a lot of of competition between the three Asian acupuncture communities, Japanese, Korean, and Chinese. The Chinese were were dominant because there were more of them. There's a bigger population of Chinese people, and they wanted to be in charge. They liked being in charge. And so they were, you know, pushing other people out. And so there was now there was a struggle going on about who who represent who's going to represent this burgeoning professional Chinese medicine community? Is it going to be the Chinese or the Japanese or right? And the Chinese community in San Francisco, having been here forever, you know, since eighteen forty nine, uh, they had a lot of local power. At that time, I think Chinese had owned one-third of the real estate in San Francisco. Wow. So, and they had, you know, they had friends in Sacramento, and they certainly had friends in, in the mayor's office, and they had a lot of pull, a lot of influence. But there wasn't going to be success if there wasn't a unified voice. So I helped start a new organization called, um, I can't even remember the name exactly, but it was an organization that brought, tried to bring all these groups together under one name. You're like the Gonsal of this situation. Exactly. Let's try to harmonize. You know, we're not going to succeed unless we have one voice. And so we did that. That that really helped. How did you manage to get these three competing um, nationalities to work together? Um, because everybody could see that it wasn't working. It wasn't going to work unless there was unity. That didn't mean that they would stay unified afterwards, but at least... <laughs> We're going to get together, get this thing done, and then back to squabbling. Sounds like the original right. 13 states in America. Yeah. Anyway, there was, and then there was Californians for acupuncture. There were a lot of different... Uh, groups that were coming together and lo heavily lobbying the state senate and George Moscone, who had been uh, was the state senator from San Francisco, and he was also a friend, you know, a good friend of the because he was a good friend of the Chinese community in particular. So he was spearheading in the state senate this law. He was the main sponsor of the law, and he got he got it passed. And Jerry Brown was the governor, was the first governorship. Mm -hmm. Jerry Brown, 
And he was very, you know, of course, a really very liberal left-wing kind of politician. He was very young still. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's have acupuncture. So he, he supported it. He signed it. And I think, I think we were, a, my father, his partner, Harriet, and I were among the first about 200 people to be licensed in the state of California. That's early. That's right at the beginning. What kinds of people were coming to acupuncture school at the time that you started up the school? In 19... Well, it was 1980, I guess. So I had I had agreed to be a teacher at this school that was being started. And so I had been in practice since this was... So I'd been in practice about six years and had spent... And I'd had a really good education from Miriam Lee for three or four years. Plus, I had met, you know, I had met other people and China, you know, other Chinese practitioners that I had also learned from. And so he gave the head of the school or the owner of the school gave me the task of creating an acupuncture curriculum, which I did. And the first group of students were, there were 10 my first group of students were 10 people. And they were, one was a pharmacist, one was a homeopath. There were a couple of nurses and, um, you know, people who had uh, massage therapists. Mm. Well, that had heard about acupuncture. And also, I think a couple of, uh, people who had studied naturopathy, and but there was no licensing for any of these professions. So there was now there was licensing for acupuncture, and the San Francisco College of Acupuncture had been approved by the Department of Post Secondary Education in the state of California. Mm-hmm to offer a what's called a professional degree. That would open up the door to a lot of people, wouldn't it? Now now there's a path. You don't just have to be an outlaw. Right. You can, you can actually be in the phone book. And so some people had, uh, who were like homeopaths, there was no licensing for homeopathy. There still isn't licensing for homeopathy. But there, and there wasn't licensing for naturopathy in California yet. So if you got an acupuncture license, you could practice. So that was in 19, I think 1980, between 1979 and 1981, these, this first group of people went through the curriculum, which was a, a lasted about two semesters. I was wondering how long was the schooling at that point to learn acupuncture? Um, I think it was about a year, about a year. Mm -hmm. And you were turning out people who could competently do acupuncture. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, this is my personal view. And I'm sure lots of people would be upset with me for saying this, but I don't think you need to go to school for four years, three or four years to become a, a good acupuncturist or even a good herbalist. I think that these, um, certainly these ideas, the intellectual part can be trans transmitted very quickly. And the important part is the practice, is, le is, lear is learning by doing. And the way our educational system is set up, it's more about pouring information into people, uh, which you have to do first, right? You have to to listen to many, many lectures, and then you uh, are allowed, you're given permission to start working on patients. So I think it's backwards. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I would not disagree with you. I know this will make me sound like a heretic. It seems to me, if you just want to be an acupuncturist, I don't know about, I, I think herbal medicine might take longer, but I think to be an acupuncturist, like why don't we train people like you would train a plumber or an electrician? Get you up and skilled. You're going to spend all your life learning anyway. Get some core foundation down and then just get to work. You said the magic bad word. What? Like, like training a plumber. People don't want to be like plumbers. They want to be doctors. And so, in order to, in order to gain the prestige and the recognition that comes with having done a real training, a real education that takes three or four years, and then there's more education afterwards too, and you can get another degree, and so on and so forth, and then you can get uh, all kinds of certificates now. There are. There's specialization. There's fertility, and there's and there's orthopedics, and you know, um, you know, this is this is the, this is the model. This is the uh, established Western medical model of education and practice. It's not 
I understand that. Right. <laughs> and look, I, you know, I hear you talk about studying with Miriam Lee the way that you did and, and what you learned and yeah. how that gave you a foundation. Yeah. Maybe I, it's just been practicing long enough and, and just asking myself um, troublesome questions as I go. I agree with you. The idea of being a tradesperson may not carry the same cred as being a, air quotes, doctor. But look, a good skilled tradesperson of any stripe, be it a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician, like the last time that my plumbing needed help, I was glad to have a skilled yeah. tradesman come and take care of it. I agree with you. Um, it's, you know, medicine is a craft. You know, so here, here's a question. Again, perhaps a troublesome question. I get it that we're practicing medicine after a fashion. From the conventional society's point of view and from Western medicine's point of view, eh, maybe we're practicing medicine. I mean, we have a license to do it and it's considered medicine in a sense, but it's also not considered medicine in a sense. In a sense, we're doing something else. I don't have a name for it, but I don't think I'd call it medicine in the way that our culture defines medicine. I don't know what to call it. Have you got an idea what to call it? Paul Upshold makes a distinction between what he called healthcare and medicine. Now, his definition of medicine is that there is a paradigm that is the foundation of the education and the practice. There's a theoretical foundation. So, traditionally in China, there was healthcare which was, you know, all of the, the centuries of acquired knowledge about plants and animals and, and acupuncture and, and body therapies, and all very effective, right? All useful and good information. But then, so, but that was one level of, of what he calls the tradition of health, traditional health care in China. Then there was traditional, and then there became medicine, which happened around the time of the of the Neijing Suwen, and the establishment of the empire, and a legalist tradition, you know, becoming dominant, and that there, you know, and this was the medicine of the elite, right? Not of the common folk, the so-called scholar doctors. Mm-hmm. And it's not that different from the West, you know, that um, the historical tradition of Western medicine is that professional doctors treat people of means, right? And the common folk, the lumpen, they go to the barber or they go to the midwife or they go to the, right? Acupuncturist. Right, the acupuncturist, exactly, or the massage therapist. Mm -hmm. But there's this, whole, there's this whole other tradition of knowledge and practice that was not considered medicine because it didn't have a, a theoretical paradigm that everybody shared that was the foundation of the education and then the practice. And the status that goes with it. 
and the status that goes with it. And, and I recommend to you and all your listeners a small book that Paul Untrold wrote called Medical Ethics in Imperial China. Mm. Very important book, and nobody knows it, and nobody read, therefore nobody reads it. But Paul, as you probably know, was a scholar of both the history of Western and Chinese medicine. I did not know he was a scholar of Western medicine. Yes. In fact, he was the chair of the Department of Medical History, University, Medical University of Munich, for many, many years. So he taught medical students um, the history of medicine. And so what he writes in this book, one of the very interesting observations that he made in comparing the history of the two medical traditions is that they're very similar in their attempt to professionalize. Mm -hmm. The only thing happened in Europe has happened in China. That is, for a long time, maybe centuries, uh, the professional doctors mostly cared for people in the upper classes. And they didn't have to charge. They were on, you know... They were on retainer. They were on retainer by, by whatever benevolent, you know, upper class person. So, and this was true in Europe as well as in China. And then at a certain point, forget exactly when, because of the change in the in the uh, social economic hierarchy of the society, they lost their financial support. They couldn't depend on that, so they had to kind of re completely rethink being a doctor. They had to change their their rationale from originally it was like, well, doctors only do medicine. Out of concern, out of true, genuine concern for people, right? We don't charge for that because ethically, that's our that's our mission. It's not not a commodity. We're not selling it. It's something that we give, right? We don't. It's not right to charge for it. But then, but if nobody's going to pay for our food and lodging and everything else, well, we're going to have to charge now. Oh, my God. That's what those itinerant doctors do in the marketplace. They're charging, right? They're, they're hustling, right? They're, they're bargaining. They're, you know, yelling at each other in the marketplace saying, no, nah, he's, a, he's a jerk. Don't go to him. I know how to, right? Like that. <laughs> it just sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> you can't do that. We can't be like those people. They don't even have nice clothes. So they have to figure out now how to rationalize the fact that their services uh, merit being paid by the patient. Ephraim, it's a, quest it's a question that's still with us. Many people in our profession struggle with that very question. It's like, I'm a doctor. I'm not a business person. I shouldn't have to do soil my hands with money. But if you look at the history of how Chinese medicine was practiced among the majority of the population in China, 
for centuries, and in, say, Greek medicine, the time of Hippocrates, you know that one of the first subjects that young students had to learn in Hippocratic schools was rhetoric. You had to learn how to convince people to come to you for, for your services. Why? Because you don't put an ad in a phone book or on a, a web page. You have to go out into the marketplace, which is where the people are, and you have to argue and, and cajole and convince, right? And be better with words, you know, than your competitors to get patients, get people to come to you. It's so it's so interesting that some of these historic, I'm going to say divides or, or perspectives uh -huh. are still absolutely alive and well and still running within our communities today. Absolutely. Now we call it branding. We don't call it rhetoric, but it's the same thing. Well, you know, there, there's still this, web, this website on the internet uh, for... Um, for criticizing uh, acupuncturists, herbalists, and all kinds of other non-conventional practitioners of being frauds, right? I don't remember the name of the website, but there, there's a you know these doctors who are trying to you know convince people that don't don't go to an acupuncturist. That's just voodoo. Right? There's no basis for that, right? Anyway, that's that's a whole other podcast, I think. It is, yeah. Well, you know, the contending forces of different medical um, paradigms and and traditions and practices. Yes. Which. So, so let me ask you this, because this this is the the history uh -huh. part of the history series. The forces that you saw arrayed against acupuncture when you were first getting all this stuff up and running, is it the same story today or has it changed? Um, I think it's changed. I do. I think that acupuncture has been become part of American culture, mass culture. In fact, I remember um, seeing a a big ad on a billboard uh, on the freeway in San Francisco. It was an ad for Volkswagen. And it was a Volkswagen bug. It was a big picture. And there were acupuncture needles all over the, the bug. <laughs> <laughs> were they selling bugs? Were they selling acupuncture? What were they selling with this? I don't remember what the byline was, but I thought, wow, this has really reached a new level of just ordinary, you know, colloquial life. I would absolutely agree. Look, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I live in the heartland. I'm like in the center of the center. Yeah. There's nobody here who hasn't heard of it. Uh -huh. Some people use it. Some people don't. Some people don't have an opinion. I don't think anybody has not heard of it. It has seeped that deeply into our mass culture. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of it. And, um, and I'll just end by saying that I, I did 
give a lecture once to um, to the ACTCM class, graduating class, on the history of Chinese medicine in America. Mm. And the lesson of that is that Chinese medicine has been part of American medicine, American healthcare, since the Chinese first came to America. And it's this is, you know, it's been part of uh, American healthcare. Not American medicine, American healthcare. I really appreciate your distinction with that. Yeah. And some very, you know, you mentioned Ying He, the famous doctor in John Day, Oregon. There was another famous doctor in uh, Idaho who became very famous Chinese doctor during the gold rush because he was able to treat minors and, and prostitutes for syphilis, for gonorrhea, for sexually transmitted diseases that Western doctors didn't know how to treat except with very toxic, you know, poison. So he became very famous. And when medical licenses were first introduced in America, he was one of the first doctors to be to have be given a medical license. He became he was given an MD just on the basis of his reputation. Community wouldn't try to learn what he was doing. Because that could be, you know, it's helpful for a lot of people. Plus, there's money to be made. It relieves a lot of suffering. I think he had three sons, and they all went to Western Medical School. <laughs> but his his uh, his pharmacy is is uh, still um, exists, and it's a it's a historical preserved for historical reasons. And in Idaho, in Idaho, and. We learned about it through a, a medical anthropologist that we met years ago from UC, who had studied, who had gone there to study his clinic, and all of his herbs are still there, and you know everything is still there as it was, which is the same. Wait a minute, are you talking about Doc Hay, or are you talking about the guy in Idaho? Oh, I'm talking about the guy in Idaho. So both Doc Hay and and this guy in Idaho left these treasures yeah. for us to discover. Yeah. Lucky us. So, um, what do you think? <laughs> I, I want to ask you one more question. I mean, we can come back and, and have another conversation. Okay. I want to finish with one question. It's not really history. It's more like you and the way you work and the way that you have like taken in the material, made it your own. Well, become the kind of doctor you are. So Miriam Lee, you said about her that she had a, a tremendous appetite for learning. Yeah. She knew the dong sure. She knew the, the, the dong system. It sounds like she knew some other stuff. And it sounds like if she, she heard of something or she wanted to learn it, she'd go at it and get that too. Yeah. Uh, there are folks like Susan Johnson who are have done a terrific job with taking what she's learned from Miriam Lee and, and, and taking that dong acupuncture and making it available to us. I'm curious, 
did the Dong style become part of what you do, or is there something else that you got from Miriam that kind of gestated and became the the kind of acupuncturist that you are? I think that you know I've I've learned some of the Dong acupuncture techniques that Miriam taught me, uh, but not the whole system, and. Uh, I think that what I got from Miriam is a, for one thing, she is fearless. Mm. So I got that from her. It's like, don't be afraid of, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people, a lot of young acupuncturists who I would say they're afraid of the chi. When you say afraid of the chi, what are you what are you seeing? What 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 brings that up? How are they afraid of the chi? Like like patients actually feeling something, mm. something strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not supposed to. You don't want to hurt people. You don't want to make them uncomfortable. And the chi, you know, when you get the chi, when you really get the chi, it's like really strong. Can be. And can be, and I think that um, a lot of people are, you know, they're afraid of that, or they're worried about it. You know, they just like, I don't know, I don't, they don't like, are comfortable. It makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole trend, and of course I'm part of it myself, of trying to make things as painless as possible. Right. Um, because in our culture, in American culture in particular, pain is the enemy. I go to the acupuncturist to get rid of my pain and you're hurting me. <laughs> well, as, as a buddy of mine that I, that I met in Taiwan used to say, <laughs> he'd say, uh, whatever pain you might get in acupuncture, it's going to be way minuscule compared to the pain that brought you in the door. Of course, but that's a rational answer. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Humans are not rational creatures. I I get it. Exactly. I get it. Yeah. So you learn to be fearless. So anyway, Miriam taught me to be fearless in the sense of like, well, don't be afraid to try something to do something new or try a new way or if it's not in the if it's not in the in the book that doesn't mean that it's not good or not useful and um, I think that uh, I, I have you know I have I have an open mind about Chinese medicine and um, I'm I feel that it's, as I'm sure you do, that it's not something fixed. It's something that's evolved over a long period of time. It's continuing to evolve given the conditions and circumstances in which it finds itself. And the principles and the theories that we've been educated to, uh, to use as a foundation are, are all well and good, but they evolve too. 
the way we use them, the way we interpret them, the way we apply them has to be flexible and creative. Imagination is an important part of uh, being a good craftsperson. <laughs> because every in, every situation that you encounter that you where there's a problem that you're being asked to solve is different. It's a new situation, right? It may look like something you've seen before, but then as you look into it, it may you find out, well, mm, this is really different. I'm going to have to figure out a new way to, to handle this, you know, using the same tools that I have. So that's, that's what I got from Miriam Lee. Well, thank you for passing that along. She spent every weekend reading, going back to the classics you know, to the Bibles and reading them over and over and over and thinking about them and coming up with new ways of, of applying that ancient material. So there you have it. There we have it. E from Corn Gold, thank you so much for this time today. It, it's been a delightful conversation and, uh, you know, it... it I know from practicing this medicine, there's a lot of richness in it. And and hearing some of your experience from the early days and in, in the spirit that you've brought to it, the role that you've played, it, I just have a lot of appreciation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Been great. Really enjoyed it. I have plenty of respect for those who were there in the profession before we really had a profession. They put their heart into learning and practicing the medicine. They didn't let issues like licensure or public recognition of the medicine stop them. I suspect that what in part sustained them has a lot to do with what Ephraim has to say about paradigms. A good one can be applied effectively to new problems. I think that it's true, and as we face the current set of issues with practice and integration with conventional medicine, and for that matter, maybe more importantly with the contentious social issues of our day, there are likely ways of using our medicine and what we've gleaned from it through self-reflection that can help us to bring solutions to the ever-unfolding challenge of harmonizing heaven and earth. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.